Well, beloved, it is good to be back again with you this morning. Our trip to Asia was a rich blessing and was used, you know, by God to give us a path forward for Christ the King's gospel work overseas. I want to extend a special thank you to John Two and to Dustin Haddock for ably filling the pulpit while we were away. And I also want to thank you, congregation, for your prayers and faithfulness to the ministry here while all three of your elders were gone. It was a blessing to know that we have such a church that all three elders could go on this important endeavor and know that everything was going to be taken care of while we were gone. Such a wonderful gift. While we were overseas, we had both the opportunity and the privilege to meet with a local pastor in the area. I'll call him Adam. He was very eager to help us understand what kinds of work are currently being done in the country and what is needed going forward. Now in his early 30s and having walked with Christ for about 13 years, Adam has faced his own kinds of substantial opposition. From the complete rejection of his family to hostility from both the government and Muslims in his community, both of which put him in danger and require him to relocate his family about every two or three years for their safety. Even while facing these various kinds of trials, Adam met with us in the open at a restaurant, a public restaurant. He was more concerned sitting at that restaurant for our safety than he was for his own. He said to us, I'm already on the government's watch list. You're not. Don't worry about me. I just don't want to put you on their radar. At one point in the conversation, Adam told us a story about his co-elder in the work, a man that I'll call Brent. This brother had lately been wrestling with fear of increased persecution by the local police force. Just before we arrived, Brent had an interaction with his son that necessitated him coming face to face with his own fears. He had asked his son to go down the street and get something from a neighbor. I think it was some dinner ingredients, if I remember correctly. His son left the house, but returned almost immediately to inform him that there was a dog in the road, and that dog was barking at him and scaring him. After several unsuccessful attempts at encouraging his son to be brave, a couple of Brent's daughters came in and said that the dog didn't scare them, and they would run the errand instead. They shortly returned with the goods, no harm done from the dog. (laughs) Turning to his son, Brent began to rebuke him for his cowardice. He had assured his son that that dog was all bark and no bite. But as soon as the words were out of his mouth, the Holy Spirit convicted him of committing the exact same wrong. For months, he had feared the government coming to his home to fine him or charge him or imprison him. And he had been reluctant to keep up the mission of Christ in their area with the fervency that he had once had. He repented 
and gave again his full effort to the work. As we've gone through this study of Nehemiah, I've thought frequently of the lessons that I hope we take away from both of these books. One I keep coming back to again and again is this. We have been given a mission by King Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, and nothing in all creation is going to stop the success of that mission. In the light of the unassailable kingship of our Lord, every enemy we will face is the equivalent of a barking dog. And we are not to imitate the fearful child, but we are to rest in the confidence that our Father will see the completion of the building of the kingdom of his Son, and that every enemy will be put under his feet, and that he will only send each of us trials that will make us more like Jesus. Well, when last time we were with our protagonist, the consternation of the enemy had mutated from a rage, you remember, into taunts, which ultimately led to some mean, nasty insults. The dog was barking, and according to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 5, the workers were getting kind of scared. Nehemiah responded to this with a plea to God for justice against his adversaries, and the people renewed their diligent vigor for the mission of God in Jerusalem. Now, if you'll look with me at verse 7, you see the results of the zeal of the people of God. The wall was being, the LSB says, repaired. The Hebrew word there is actually a word for mending or healing It refers to when skin covers over a wound. So the holes in the wall were getting patched up. The enemies of God are still mad and getting madder by the second. They were frustrated, I've heard it said. They were as curmudgeony as your local librarian whose book displays are being challenged. This might not sound... In our case here, like much has changed. Chris, it seems like they've been mad this entire time. But something significant has changed this morning in our story. Notice the usual suspects in verse 7. Sam Ballot and the Samaritans are here, along with the Arabs, that's likely Geshem's company, and the Ammonites, you know those as Tobiah's posse and gang. But a new group has joined the fun. Team Serpent has gotten some transfers from a local loyalty club. That would be the Ashdodites. So your question is, of course, well, what's the significance of that? Let's have a little cartography lesson this morning. Most of you will recognize that Samaria was to the north of Jerusalem. The Arabs at this time had a strong contingent to the south of Jerusalem. And If you think about to the east of the city of Jerusalem, that's where the Ammonite settlement was located. And as you probably have guessed by now, the Ashdodites had taken some property from the Philistines to the west of Jerusalem. The point, Jerusalem now is surrounded by enemies on all sides. This isn't a group of rioters anymore. Enough with the tomfoolery. No more playground antics. These are men 
who are assembling for war. You can see that in verse 8. It's conspiracy that leads to fighting that will lead to confusion and a cessation of the work. If chapter 4 begins with the nations raging, then verses 7 and 8 describe their plotting against the Lord and his anointed to follow the outline of Psalm 2. You might say, but wait a second, Chris. Last time you said that Nehemiah had a decree from Artaxerxes to build Jerusalem. That means that these armies can't really do anything, right? Initiating combat would put them against the Persian state. Wouldn't they get a daddy spanking if they threw the first punch? Well, they would, but like most kids know, you won't get a spanking if you don't get caught. Think about it. One caravan of food destined for Jerusalem never really makes it to the city limits. And then another never makes it in. And then another. And the aqueducts start bringing in less water than before. The villages in the surrounding countryside began to show some skepticism about all these Zionist efforts. And when you look out on the horizon in the early morning or in the late evening, you see massive bonfires lit and squadrons of soldiers and troop formations and you hear battle cries. And all of that can happen without one word making its way back to King Artaxerxes. I mean, if you think about it, if you have the city surrounded, who's getting a letter out to the Persian emperor anyway? As always, Israel was in a vulnerable position. And the point at this point in our text we need to realize is that so are we. We are a vulnerable people. No one here has ever lived in a society where water, food, shelter, and safety were givens, which may sound odd for me to say. We live in a highly sophisticated world. We have an incredibly well-engineered system of product distribution, and you couple that to an extremely friendly state border agreement between states, all of this guarded by heavily invested commercial interests, resulting in a historically unparalleled and largely unbroken channel of abundance. If I could put that all in layman's terms, we've never known what it's like to go without. At least we didn't until the government told the Charmin factories to lay off about a thousand workers. Costco lost its supply chain of toilet paper. Folks got pretty desperate. And all of a sudden, mom's trying to pawn some toilet paper with enough fervency to make your local pot dealer blush. <laughs> if you think about it, beloved, in reality, we are just as fragile as Nehemiah's Israel. You pull out one cog in the machine and you will have a mess on your hands. Here's something that we should stop and consider for a moment this morning. Humanity, by its very nature, is finite. You sang that in some of the songs this morning. What I'm saying is that we are feeble, we are weak, we are delicate, we are frail, we are vulnerable, 
As I pulled out of my driveway this morning, my children and I noticed a bunch of daylilies starting to sprout up out of the ground. They're one of the most beautiful flowers. I love seeing my daylilies blossom. But as you know, a daylily is here today, gone tomorrow. Very fleeting. Chris, I thought you were going to tell me that in Christ, Christians are invincible. That nothing can happen to us outside of God's will. That the dog won't bite us. That was the purpose of that story at the beginning, right? Beloved, you know the truth of the matter is the dog can't bite. And if he bites, the bite's probably going to hurt. Because we are finite creatures. We need to remember who we are in this story. Christ the King members live in a world of sustained blessings. And this has a tendency to make Christian men and women pretty self-reliant. Think of ourselves as autonomous. I can get by. There's always going to be food in the grocery store. I'll always turn on water at my house. The trials God sends for one thing are meant to remind us that we aren't in control of this universe. And Nehemiah gets this. He understands this concept intrinsically because of the time and attention he gave to studying God's word while he was cupbearer in Artaxerxes' house. How do you know that, Chris? Because of the way he responds in verse 9. The first thing he does is pray. To use the Latin... Ora et labora. He prays, and then he works. He prays first, and then he works. The the ordering in verse 9 is very intentional. Surrounded with enemies on all sides, the first thing that he does is get on his knees and beseech the favor of his God. He doesn't set a guard. He doesn't write to the king. He doesn't run into the valley to get the Jews pumped up and united again. He prays because he knows that this whole project has been entrusted to a fragile rabble and the whole thing is hanging by a silk thread. Nehemiah knows this dog can bite. And so he prays. He prays because he believes that if God acts on his behalf, that dog's mouth can stay closed. Have you considered that your prolonged trials are God's gift to you to remind you, as Jesus reminds us in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing. The quintessential parable of the Christian life found in John 15 is that of a branch which can do nothing apart from its vine. You need the Lord, beloved. I need the Lord every moment of every day. Chris, I know that already. We always pray when we face trials. Our family huddles up. We get together. We go to God first when there's the slightest sign of a challenge. So why aren't you content in Christ after you pray and receive no answer? Where does the joy go when you go for days and months and years and God doesn't send healing? How is it that your regular troubles 
provide a constant stream of excuses to your faithful obedience to the word of God. Church, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. But God allows weakness in your flesh and in your family and in the world around you to teach you to live like that reality is the true reality. He's teaching us to walk as children who are finite that must depend on their heavenly father. This does not mean inaction. Waiting on the Lord isn't idleness. Nehemiah, you notice, prayed and then set the guard. Ora et labora. He prays and then he works. And you can pray and then you can go to a doctor or you can get the marriage counseling or call the elders for advice or whatever. But remember that apart from God, you are constantly surrounded and God must act on your behalf every moment of every day. If our church got a hold of this truth, it would transform the way that we pray on Wednesday nights and in our quiet times at home. Last week, I was doing some meditation on Luke 11 and the parable of the friend at midnight. The disciples had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And what follows in those first verses of Luke 11 is our Lord's longest teaching on what prayer is. You remember the story. After the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells the parable of a man who goes to his friend in the middle of the night with a need. He has received a late night guest and has nothing to give him. Now notice this. All the shops were closed at night. No Walmart 24-7. Options for providing for this man's guest were zero. He had no options. And so this man goes to his friend and asks for bread. Hear Jesus in this parable speaking directly to our finitude, to our limits, to our inability to do anything apart from the Father. That's why he continues asking in this parable, the friend. He continues knocking again and again until he gets that other man out of bed. Don't miss that. The knocking continued until he got what he asked for. Nehemiah had a need. He recognized that the workers were vulnerable. Have you got a need? You've got a problem. You're facing a trial. Jesus commands us in Luke 11, ask, seek, knock. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Why? Because you serve a father who doesn't hand out snakes and stones to hungry children. We've got a father who sent his own child out into the street, into the danger for our sake. And now he sends us out into the midst of wolves. Why? Because he knows the wolves and he knows his children. Brothers and sisters, you, like Nehemiah, have a need. So go to your father and believe the words 
of the Lord Jesus that when you ask, you will receive. Get away from all this hyper-Calvinist nonsense. Well, if it's God's will and I'll just... You know when we say stuff like that? We don't actually pray. We're not actually knocking. Uh, no, it's, it's probably not his will anyway. Don't do that. Jesus doesn't say that. He says knock and keep knocking until the guy gets out of bed. Isn't that interesting that the Lord would compare his father to a man who's saying, I'm going to stay in bed. That's so wild. But Jesus says, it's like this. Ask, seek, knock. And he says, most who ask receive? No. He says, everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks the door is open to. What a promise in prayer. Brothers and sisters, if we get a hold of this, we recognize our need, our finitude. God could bless our prayers in a massive way. Well, I admit, as I know many of you would, that we don't do that and we avoid God because we struggle to believe that he is a good father. This often results in our trials getting bigger in our minds. They amass an army, they surround us, and then they begin to choke us and overwhelm us. Neglecting the protection of God and the putting on of his armor the propaganda machine of the slanderer is powerful and it usually ends up working. Look at verses 10 through 12. What happened as a result of the nations plotting against the people of God? I want you to note the progression of things going from bad to worse in these three verses. In verse 10, those who were laboring on the wall were discouraged by the sheer size of the work. There's too much rubble. Our strength is failing. We just can't do this. The intimidation of the enemy was relentless, and the Jews felt like they were suffocating under all the labor. This ultimately could be described as giving up, or defeatism, or just plain and simple, they were doubting God. And it gets more complicated in verse 11. Israel's enemies rattle their sabers harder. Let's come on them and kill them and scatter them before they know what hit them. In addition to doubt, now the people of God are facing fear. The complaint, I can't do this, God, quickly turns into a challenge. I'm not going to do this because I'm going to get hurt. That dog can bite, Dad. I'm not going out there, Dad. Verse 12 concludes the death spiral of doubt and fear when we turn on God and his people in betrayal. This is one of the hardest verses in Nehemiah to translate. However, the essential idea seems to be that threats were being made not just to the people working on the wall in Jerusalem, but to those living in the countryside surrounding Jerusalem. And the former, now feeling the pressure of the danger as well as the latter. As a result, they came to Nehemiah and his company, the Bible says 10 separate times, and said, stop it, knock it off. Come on back home to the countryside and give up this rebuilding Zion stuff. We're all gonna die if y'all keep at it. Now, you can imagine what it was like to be Nehemiah in this situation. 
doubt from his own people, which was growing into fear for the enemies surrounding them, and now friendly fire from their Jewish neighbors. Nehemiah has to pivot. He's not going to react. As always, he's going to respond. Before we go into how Nehemiah handles the trials, though, which of the three, doubt, fear of man, and betrayal, is eating your lunch right now? You might say, Chris, for me, it's doubt. I feel like those men who had so much to do, and I'm losing the willpower to keep up with it. Our family has been so tried over the last year. We faced sickness and sorrows, and they all just keep coming, and I'm struggling to believe that God is still for me. That right there is the issue, after all. What was the one thing that the people in verse 10 neglected to mention in their complaint to Nehemiah? They neglected to mention that God was still for them. Nehemiah didn't forget. That's why he prayed first in response to the initial threats of the raging nations. If you're in the middle of a season of intense doubt, nothing will help you to rid those wicked thoughts from your mind than the simple fact that in Christ, God is for you. Dustin said this in a sermon last week. He said something along the lines of washing your mind clean of the filth of unbelief and doubt has nothing to do with emptying it like people do in Eastern meditation, but by filling it with the truths revealed in God's word. And he's absolutely right. Those words that were sung last night right before Will and Bonnie's wedding ceremony. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Those are the words we need in moments like these. Spurgeon said, there is one who cares for you. His eye, believe this church, is fixed on you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. His omnipotent hand will bring you the much needed help. Doubt not his grace because of your tribulations, but believe, and this is so important, but believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in seasons of happiness. He loves you just as much. Recognize this, church, that your moments of doubt are moments when you've got a foot raised off the floor. At that moment, when your foot is off the floor, you can either step forward or you can step backwards. But you gotta take a step. For those of you who are desperate to move forward, I would commend to you Dustin's application from last week. Turn off your phone, get out your Bible, and meditate on passages centered on God's goodness towards his people. I want you to consider fear for just a minute. We've thought about doubt. Some of you are wrestling with fear. Your trials, whatever they are, seem to be getting stronger and stronger. And you keep seeking God, but the enemy continues to muster his forces and they advance on your position. You might even pray to God like this. You see they're eventually gonna get to me, Lord. You see that, don't you? God, I'm afraid. 
What if I don't get better? What if my child never heals? What if my sin, excuse me, what if my son continues to walk away from his profession? What if my wife never joyfully submits to me, but keeps undermining me in our friendships and finances and home? Lord, my sin keeps getting worse. And I feel that the people at this church are gonna find out soon how bad I really am. That's really it, isn't it? You fear everything that there is to fear. But where is your fear of God? I ask, where is your fear of the Lord? Of transgressing his commandments. By your fear of men and circumstances, isn't that a belittling of his kindness to you? I know this sounds counterintuitive. When you have tremendous fears in this life, can those fears be overwhelmed by the fear of God? And the biblical answer is, absolutely they can. Do not fear those who can kill the body, Jesus says. But however, they are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. How do you fight one fear? With a better, greater, beautiful fear. Why this fear and unbelief anyway, beloved? Has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? There are some young people sitting in this auditorium today, probably some adults too, but there's some young people here who ought to be in great fear of God right now. Perhaps they've never made a profession of faith and they're still under his just and coming wrath. But I'm speaking directly to the ones who have made a profession of faith. In front of this church, they proclaimed that they died to their sin in Christ. And as a public display of that faith, they followed Christ's example in being buried in baptism. And yet today, at home, when your friends, little ones, at this church aren't watching you, but in the sight of God, whom you're currently not fearing, you walk in open rebellion to your parents and you are walking opposed to your baptism. And you fancy that you will be saved in the day of the Lord. Young person, hear me now. If you put on your kabuki mask every time you walk through these doors and you do not live in fear and submission to Yahweh God at home, how can you argue that the Holy Spirit really abides in you? I'm not talking about perfection. I am talking about fear. Young person, fear God. Repent of your fear of men and your pandering to their little fancies or what you think their fancies are. If your friends knew who you really were when you're at home, and perhaps many of them do, and they're afraid to tell you, which is also wrong. Young person, if you were known for who you really are, would you not run in fear from this place and hide yourself from everyone? So where will you run to on judgment day when God exposes before all men who you really are? I say, young people, those who have made that profession of faith in Christ, today, 
resonate with the thought that your parents are amening to. Fear God. Fear God. Repent to the Father today and also repent to your parents and leave these foolish ways behind and walk and keep in step with the Holy Spirit whom you have professed to have received into your heart. I want to look at the last one real quick in this list. Betrayal. The death spiral of doubt that leads to fear can get worse. It affects a man to the point at which he will even turn on his own kinsmen because of his fear of other men. The repetition in verse 12 of the request to stop obeying God, remember it was 10 times they said stop, shows that these local Jews in Nehemiah's day were, because of their fear, now committed. Think about this for a minute. They were committed to dethroning the Holy One of Israel in the hopes that their enemies would give them the peace that they were wanting. Doubt that leads to fear of men that culminates in betrayal of Christ and his kingdom. Now that ought to sound a little familiar. This is precisely how the church has gotten to the place where it will stand up Sunday after Sunday if they meet in person and say, we just have to wear the masks. We just have to get the jab. We have to let the women speak. We've got to listen to the victims. We just have to accept sodomites into membership. We just have to overlook our fat preacher. We can't judge the horishly dressed women on Sunday morning. We just have to submit to the government. We must let the state tell us when it is safe for us to meet and worship God. In exchange for a bowl of lentil peace and security stew, the church in America has sold its birthright and dethroned God to make room for our enemies who said, we'll give you peace. I can tell you there's no way out of this, beloved. This black hole of faithlessness will lead to the complete annihilation of the church of Jesus Christ unless we repent. I'm getting ready to go into how Nehemiah handled the conflict in his day and how we can handle ours too. But beloved, today, together, we must repent of our own doubts and our fears and our betrayals of Christ and his kingdom. Jesus receives repenters. He welcomed Peter back into fellowship and even apostolic leadership over his church, restoring him three separate times to his office. But we must repent. We must run to Christ. Jonathan Edwards once said, God's people, whenever they are scorched by afflictions as by hot sunbeams, may resort to him who is a shadow of a great rock and be effectually sheltered and sweetly refreshed. And that promise is very true even to this day. Now, a time to fight. We've talked about Nehemiah's ability to turn a situation around with masterful precision and in verses 13 and 14, he not only rallies his own people to the work, but shows his enemies he's not going to back down. He says, in essence, you want to fight? We're not afraid. 
here we are. The most powerful thing you can see in these verses is that Nehemiah makes contact, eye contact with his enemies. And what does he see? They're the ones that are afraid. They're the ones that are afraid. Why doesn't the county commission want to listen to us? Because they're the ones that are afraid. Why is the librarian throwing a huge fit? Because she's afraid. And she's not afraid of us. The county commission's not afraid of us. They're afraid because they know there's a God who rules this earth. And they're opposing him right now. They are fearful of that. And they know that we bring the truth. We bring this truth and love to herald this message. So why is it when we look at them and they start growling like dogs, we say, okay, I'm out of here. Why? They're the ones that are afraid. This may sound like arrogance, but it's not. Nehemiah is giving us an example of Christian bravery. Notice two things in verse 13. He stations the people in the most vulnerable places around the wall where the breaches were the greatest, and he stationed them together in family groups by clans. Then he exhorts them to remember Yahweh and fight for those family groups. Don't miss this. Nehemiah commands them to fight alongside their families for their families. Now, this is something that Christian households have got to figure out how to master today. Many testify that raising a Christian family is like a daily marathon, and it has its challenges for sure. But many will say, we're just trying to get through each day without the kids at each other's throats all the time, without my wife spending my whole paycheck, by ensuring that my husband not neglect his discipline duties. I've heard men joke before about how raising a Christian family is like wars and rumors of wars. That sounds funny, but it's repulsive. Raising a Christian household should not be like that. If we say, as every Christian does, that we have fellowship with God and yet we're walking in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, not in perfection, but in the light, knowing that God is going to bring victory for us over time as we repent and keep in step with the Spirit, then what happens? John says, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I want to speak to you briefly about shoring up one of the breaches in the Christian home that I think is perhaps the most neglected. We could do a whole sermon series on the different breaches in the family of faith and in the Christian household, but I believe that one of the largest gaping holes in the walls of the kingdom to Christ today in family units, which leads to significant disunity between husband and wife, which inevitably trickles down through parenting and to the attitudes of the children is this, that is unaddressed problems in your marriage bed. I'll say that again. Yes, unaddressed problems in the marriage bed. The marriage bed is the fountain of your marriage. It is the place where your family grows. And it is the place where Satan knows he can concentrate his forces and 
without you noticing or because you've been trained by the church not to talk about that, he can inflict some of his greatest damage. If you were going to take what God has brought together, what we saw yesterday, and try and tear it apart, where would you strike first? I can tell you that Satan targets so often the one flesh union of husband and wife. Now, I understand that this is a sensitive topic. I know there are parents on their tiptoes right now. Okay, what's he about to say? Honey, I don't intend to share a lot of details, and, and, and I don't want to create unrealistic expectations either. A healthy marriage bed doesn't mean that you're caught up with Paul into the third heaven every time you make love to one another. It's pretty cool, though, but... <laughs> I want you to consider this. If the only reason you make love to your spouse is for the sake of procreation, there's a problem with your marriage bed. Brothers, if you are regular, regularly engaging in covert contracts with your wife, the kind where you pretend to serve her because you want to get something later, it's a problem with your marriage bed. Sisters, if you regularly make love to him begrudgingly, not because you delight to serve him, but because God requires it of me, there's a problem with your marriage bed. If you refuse to ever talk about sex with your spouse, for whatever reason, in order to see if he or she is being fulfilled as God commands in Christian households, there's a problem with your marriage bed. Now, I want to speak more specifically to how husbands and wives can serve one another in the coming weeks. The elders would like to participate in that as well. Some of those conversations are necessarily going to need to be in gender-specific company. So the men are going to discuss this at a future Beer and Psalms gathering. And the women have a group chat to look at the tightest two implications of the marriage bed. Serving their husband and their family at home through this avenue. But to that end, and unintentionally, I'm not trying to, but to make you more uncomfortable... This topic, as with all the holes in the walls of the kingdom of Christ, need to be repaired and guarded together. You can't solve the two becoming one problem by keeping it in your own head and in your own heart. And sometimes you can't solve it just between you and your spouse. Sometimes you need help. Husband and wife are going to have to address the breach together, head on, as Nehemiah did. If progress is slow or it's absent altogether, it is not a sin to reach out to the family of God and ask for assistance here. There may be a host of issues you need to address in the home right now, but because of what we've read this morning and because of how neglected and vulnerable we are in this area, stop neglecting this one. Have a conversation about it. Satan's forces are pouring into Christian homes today because of breaches at this decisive point. Now, beloved, I can't stand up here this morning and tell you 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of your trials will end up like that story about the boy who was afraid of the dog that might bite. The dog can bite. He may bite. And for some of you, he will. He will bite and injure, and maybe you will die because you were on mission for God. But he won't be able to injure the part of you that will live forever. That part, the dog can't touch. That part of you, when passing by the trials of your life, cannot be harmed. In fact, it can never be harmed. The more the dog threatens to do to you, that part of you which belongs to Christ will only get stronger. But you will need to face that dog head on. You will need to be obedient to your father and go out into the street and do what he commanded. You will need to address your doubts and fears and even perhaps some ways in which you have turned your back on God and betrayed the family of faith. You will have to stand in the breach at the most vulnerable places and proclaim with Nehemiah, God is greater than this hole in our wall. And you are going to need the help of the whole household of God because you are finite, you are weak. But remember this, so are your enemies. And God is on our side. So, in the words of Spurgeon, learn to kiss the waves that throw you against the rock of ages. Father, we thank you for your protective and fatherly care over us. You are good to us beyond our imagination. We can't fathom how fixed your eyes are on us in Christ, how much you love us. You love us to the point that Jesus would say, as the Father has loved me and had his eyes on me and listens to me, so he will hear straight from you. We thank you for this, Father. Thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. Perhaps there are some here today who are outside the faith, and I pray that today would be the day they repent and put their trust in Jesus and become a part of that bride. What a beautiful picture of that we saw yesterday. We ask that you would be with us in the midst of our trials. They hurt. For many of us, they have hurt for a very long time but help us to go to you now with renewed vigor because of the need that we've got and start asking and seeking and knocking. And Lord, when we do, you're the one who said it. You promised that you would open that door and you would help us. Help us not just to ask, seek, and knock and be persistent, but to look for those answers as well. And when we do, we give all the glory to Jesus. For it is he who is worthy alone. He is king over this world and over his church. And we long to see his day. We look forward to it. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.